0: want you to hit me as hard as you can. Imagine waking up every day in the same bed, then going to the same job and talking about the same thing with the same people. Oh, you've done that already? Let's make it worse. Imagine waking up every day in a town you hate, with Sonny and Cher always on the clock radio, then hanging around the same hicks at the same ceremony to worship a rodent. Let's go one more round. Imagine doing all of it in front of a film crew in whiplashing Midwest weather in the middle of a divorce, all while your closest professional and personal relationship deteriorates through bouts of arguments, fisticuffs, and wet socks. Congratulations, you're Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. So rise and shine and don't forget your booties, that's right woodchuck chuckers, we're going to find out what the fuck happened to this movie. But to understand where it all began, we have to go back to where so many of Hollywood's most fabled productions begin, vampires. In 1990, a Brown University biology major named Danny Rubin moved to Los Angeles in hopes of making it big as a screenwriter. The masters in radio, TV, and film from Northwestern wasn't a bad resume pattern, but he needed that one big idea that would propel him over the competition in Hollywood. And if we're going by 90s tropes, that's waiters and baristas. Having read Anne Rice's interview with the vampire follow-up, The Vampire Lestat, Rubin wondered, if a normal man didn't have to follow the conventional timeline of humanity, if they didn't have to play by the same rules, if they had all the time in the world, what would happen? Could that man, given as much time as possible, truly change? And we're not just talking Malcolm Gladwell's give me 10,000 hours and you'll get a Rachmaninoff-level pianist sort of change. Not bad. Mr. Connors, you say this is your first lesson? Yes, but my father was a piano mover, so. This isn't about ice sculptures or the French language. We mean actual change in who you are as a human. Ruben's idea was called Time Machine. After consideration, Rubin himself thought the concept sounded a little too gimmicky for big screen consumption. But he went on ahead anyway, spending seven weeks spitballing plot ideas, injecting elements of German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and outlining the story of weatherman Phil Connors, caught in a seemingly endless time loop. One week later, he typed The End, and had a completed screenplay, retitled Groundhog Day. Rubin went with the February 2nd holiday as The Day Phil gets stuck in, because it was relatively nondescript and wholly unexplored which is kind of shocking since it seemed ripe for the holiday horror genre that exploded in the 1980s, with exploitations through slashers like Christmas Evil, April Fool's Day, and Mother's Day, just to name a few. Face it, the tagline writes itself, The last thing you'll see is his shadow. But Phil Connors' own horrors would be of the existential variety. The screenplay itself hits on the Kubler-Ross model's five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Most of these stages would also crop up bluntly behind the scenes during the making of Groundhog Day. Tasked, as with all first-time screenwriters, with getting the script to the right people at the right time, Reuben saw that Groundhog Day made its way to talent agency CAA. The agency, falling madly in love with the script, tossed it onto Harold Ramis's desk, where it was taken as is with zero changes and immediately made into a motion picture. Well, not exactly. Groundhog Day did make its way to Ramis, but there were other interested parties. Rubin was faced with two options, go with lower rent company IRS Pictures, or Columbia Pictures, one of Hollywood's big five studios at the time. With IRS, the film would get a $3 million budget, but give Ruben more creative control. A bigger offer was on the table at Columbia, who was having a mild resurgence, as films like Awakenings and The Prince of Tides were around production and on their way to garnering the studio's first Best Picture nominations since their 1988 win with The Last Emperor. Pegging a $15 million budget at the expense of Ruben losing some of the creative control promised by IRS, Columbia also had the hand of Harold Ramis on their side. Ramos hadn't directed a movie since 1986's Club Paradise, which starred an eclectic bunch including Robin Williams, Hollywood royalty Peter O'Toole, British model Twiggy, and reggae legend Jimmy Cliff. And it was a box office flop and Razzie nominee. Ramus was in need of some fresh material and Groundhog Day had some potential. Unfortunately for Ruben, Ramis's desk wasn't just where scripts were delivered, it was where he kept his highlighters. Ramis in the studio almost immediately pushed for changes. Ramus in particular felt the screenplay, which read as a moody indie, needed more humor even though he was after a departure from what was typically expected from him. His writing credits read like a master class in comedy writing. Animal House, Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters, and Back to School, not to mention director credit on National Lampoon's Vacation. They all came rampantly with most being released in consecutive years and so the Groundhog Day rewrites began. As Ramus and Columbia combed through the screenplay some major issues became apparent. Rubin's first draft originally began one year into Phil's hell cycle. Before the end of the first act the cranky weatherman was already punching insurance agents and driving off cliffs expository voiceover around page 10 was implemented to catch the viewer up to speed since they might be confused as to how Phil could possibly know the radio DJ shtick so early on. The structure would need to move to a more linear format. Even the finale needed reworking. One of the more shocking elements of Ruben's initial draft was its twist ending. As Phil and love interest Rita discovered genuine warmth for one another it's revealed that Rita has stumbled into her own endless time loop. This, thankfully, would have to go, although the idea would, much later, appear in a different film, Hulu's Palm Springs. The topic of the time loop itself was of much conversation and debate. Columbia demanded an answer to how exactly Phil ended up reliving the same day over and over. And because Ruben couldn't just say, well, you know, vampires, ideas were thrown around to make the studio executives happy. One possible explanation was that a gypsy curse had been placed on Phil by a jilted ex-flame, perhaps one not so impressed by his Clint Eastwood impression but no one outside of the Columbia offices was for the idea of explaining something so unexplainable. And so while Ruben, Ramus, and producer Trevor Albert did hand over a hackneyed reason, they devised a plan to bury that part of shooting so deep into the production schedule that it would likely never have the chance to be shot at all. In addition to not just how, there was the question of how long. The duration of the endless cycle for those attempting to keep score at home has never been pinned down exactly. The original draft had Phil himself estimating 70 to 80 years. Other estimates put it at 10 years, while Ramus eventually settled on around 30 to 40 years. Further analyses have ranged from a daunting 10,000 years based on early concepts, to a more specific eight years, eight months, and 16 days. What have you been doing for the last 8.7 years? Ruben made some requested changes based on notes, delivering his next draft on, coincidentally or not, February 2nd. Ramus was then tasked to take over and complete what would become the final shooting script. In the revisions, Ramis ditched certain subplots, spruced up the dialogue, and fleshed out the characters, Phil in particular, to give more dimension and meaning to who they were. The revision process was where the tone had shifted significantly, developing the humor that Ramus didn't find in Rubin's first draft. Enter Bill Murray, and with it, the disintegration of one of the most cherished pairs in 70s and 80s comedies. Harold Ramis and Bill Murray's relationship went back to the early 1970s with the landmark Chicago-based improv group Second City and the National Lampoon Radio Hour, a short-lived radio series that featured such luminaries and future SNL players as John Belushi, Chevy Chase, and Gilda Radner. The pair went on to work together, in one form or another, on Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, Ghostbusters, and Ghostbusters 2. Interestingly, Murray wasn't always at the top of the list to play Phil Connors. Ramis's first choice was Tom Hanks but there was one major conflict. He was Tom Hanks. Hanks himself wasn't so sure if he would be believable as a curmudgeon or if American audiences would take him as a jerk, much past A League of Their Own's Jimmy Dugan. After all, there's a reason Tom Hanks gets cast as Mr. Rogers and not Mr. Babadook. Another actor considered was Batman himself, Michael Keaton, who never signed on, claiming to have not fully understood the script. Three years later, he would finally be directed by Harold Ramis in Multiplicity, the role of Phil, yes, like the groundhog Phil, eventually went to, of course, Bill Murray. Phil's producer, Rita, the moral center and eventual love interest that ensured Phil stay grounded even while being a jackass, went to Andy McDowell. She nudged out singer Tori Amos, whose music career had launched her to the MTV stratosphere the same year. Rounding out the core cast was Chris Elliott, Larry the cameraman, who had built a reputation with zany, off-the-wall characters on Late Night with David Letterman. And character actor Stephen Tobolowski as BING! Insurance salesman Ned Ryerson. Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Come on, you remember, he got shingles real bad in high school. And then there's the Groundhog. No, that's not the actual Punxsutawney Phil. Leaving the real Phil out of the movie had nothing to do with salary or celebrity riders involving prima donna demands. Instead, it came down to the inner circle, that group of top hat clad gents in charge of the Groundhog's publicity and prognosticating. The inner circle of Punxitawny was miffed that production wasn't taking place in actual Punxsutawney. And so they essentially told Columbia Pictures, find your own rodent. That rodent was Scooter and Scooter proved to be Murray's biggest on-screen nemesis for the entire shoot. During the scene in which Phil Connors steals a truck to drive himself and the groundhog off a cliff, the mad hedgehog laid on his own repetitive motions, biting Murray not once, not twice, but thrice so either Scooter just didn't vibe with Murray or he's a distant relative of the gopher from Caddyshack and getting due vengeance. Either way, Scooter never made another major motion picture. But back to Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Even if there's no evidence that Ramis literally gnawed at Murray, there are told stories of the director grabbing him by the collar and throwing his star against a wall. The tension stemmed before film was even put into the Panavision. During the pre-production phase, Ramis and Murray butted heads over what Groundhog Day really was as a film. By most recollections, Murray considered it a meditation on one's existence, while Ramus was steering it as a straight-up comedy. The tone needed to shift, Murray thought, and so he brought Danny Rubin back in to have proper involvement in the collaborative screenwriting process. Perhaps Ramus considered this a slight from his friend, or maybe he just didn't like Murray's clear stubbornness in hearing out Ramus' ideas. But Murray and Rubin were sent to New York to work out any tonal issues. Through these efforts, Ruben would claim that the final shooting script would be closer to what he initially wrote than Ramus's subsequent drafts. And so, with the final draft handed into Columbia, the green light was flashed and Groundhog Day was on its way. Location manager Bob Hudgens and his team were sent to find the perfect Punxsutawney, the first requirement being that it not actually be Punxsutawney. Ironically, Punxsutawney's locations didn't work because it essentially wasn't the Punxsutawney envisioned for the film. For one, the actual Gobbler's Knob is not in a town square, but a wide sloped field far enough outside of downtown Punxsutawney to require shuttle services for tourists. By utilizing a town square, as seen in the film, it worked to further trap Phil Connors in the town. After scouting locations in small pockets of Wisconsin to substitute for the small Pennsylvania town, Ramis suggested the Chicago area where he and Murray both resided. Woodstock, Illinois, a little more than an hour's drive from the Windy City, was set as the stand-in. Woodstock at least had the credentials, and you may recognize it from John Hughes's Steve Martin, John Candy classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Interestingly, Bob Hudgens served as a location manager for that movie as well, although he went uncredited. And while Punxsutawney residents were snubbed, local Woodstock businesses were also far from pleased, as the production took over storefronts with electrical cables and false facades. 23 local businesses even instigated a boycott, although it was brought down to 14 after some Hollywood-level convincing. The production of Groundhog Day, by most accounts, was a nightmare. Even issues that had zero to do with the making of the film, mainly Murray going through his first divorce, found their tempers entering Woodstock, Illinois. Production ran from March 1992 to June 1992, and as the weather shifted, the crew had to do their best to make everyone happy and comfortable, especially the cantankerous Murray. The Midwest hovers a little above freezing in March. For the scene, well scenes, where Murray's character steps into the doozy of a puddle to avoid Ned Ryerson, the actor wrapped his foot repeatedly with insulation. Once Ramis called cut, the frigid Murray would have a team of crew members to warm him up with blow dryers. And June isn't exactly a time to sport thick peacoats. It's a bit of a tease when fake snow fluttered above the cast and crew's heads while they sweltered in wool. Murray also seemed genuinely disinterested in being directed by, well, his director. Upon Ramus offering context and guidance on just how the actor should go about a scene, Murray wanted to know only one thing. Just tell me, good Phil or bad Phil? The communication simply wasn't there. At one point during production, Ramus requested Murray hire a personal assistant to aid in communication. It seemed like a long shot considering the actor is notoriously against assistants and agents. But Murray, realizing the error of his ways, agreed by hiring a deaf woman who only spoke American Sign Language, which nobody on set, especially Murray, knew. Really, one of the few legs up Ramus could get on Murray was telling the boys in the snowball scene to throw the balls as hard as they possibly could. As production continued to gasp forward, Murray had reportedly become irrationally mean and toddler-like, with tantrums and bouts of showing up late for work. This sort of behavior actually gave Murray a nickname early in his career, as christened by friend Dan Aykroyd, the Murricane A few examples in the path of the murricane over the years? Well, he allegedly got into fistfights with Chevy Chase during Saturday Night Live, harshly and openly criticized Lucy Liu's acting in the middle of a take on Charlie's Angels, purposely rebuffed Angelica Houston at a dinner outing during The Life Aquatic, was labeled a drunken bully by Richard Dreyfuss during What About Bob, socked Bugs Bunny on the nose during Space Jam, Okay, maybe the last one isn't true, or at least documented. Much as we love Murray's talents on the screen, it seems that behind the camera he can be quite temperamental. When production on Groundhog Day wrapped, it marked the end of one of comedy cinema's most reliable duos. Groundhog Day would be the final film Bill Murray and Harold Ramis would work on together, and the pair wouldn't share a credit until 2009's Ghostbusters the Video Game, in which they, separately, reprised their roles of cynical slime-prone Peter Venkman and spore, mold, and fungus collector Egon Spengler. Ramis said their rift left a huge hole in his life, while Murray had complete disinterest in making peace. More than a decade after Groundhog Day's release, Ramis did make an attempt at professional reconciliation as he recruited Bill's brother, Brian Doyle Murray, who played Punxsutawney's mayor in the film, to get Murray to appear in what would end up being Ramis's penultimate film, 2005's The Ice Harvest. The offer was met with a cold no. Groundhog Day debuted at number one when it was released on February 12, 1993, President's Day weekend. The movie may have arrived in theaters after the famous Woodchuck's prognostication, but it ended up with more than $70 million at the North American box office. Today, Groundhog Day has overwhelmingly shown its lasting legacy. It consistently shows up on best-of lists and was placed on the National Film Registry. The American Film Institute put it as the 34th funniest movie ever, just behind Chaplin's Modern Times. The Writers Guild of America named it the 27th best screenplay ever and ranked it the third funniest screenplay, just ahead of Airplane. It also inspired a Tony-nominated Broadway musical. Even the title has become synonymous with repetitive behavior and situations. And given the movie's enduring popularity, it's quite possible that other cinematic time loops, like Tom Cruise's vehicle Edge of Tomorrow, horror flick Happy Death Day, and sci-fi action or source code might never have existed if it wasn't for Ramis and Murray's sublime execution of the concept. Prior to 1993, the turnout for the Groundhog Day celebration in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania was around 2000 the year Groundhog Day came out, it shot to 10,000. In 2020, a new record of more than 40,000 people came out to Gobbler's Knob. As for Woodstock, Illinois, 2019's celebration was attended by a mere 1,200, so it sounds like the inner circle got the last laugh. As for the relationship between Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, Big Brother Brian may not have been able to get Murray to work with Ramis ever again, but he did convince him to tie up any loose ends. Just prior to Ramis' death in 2014, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis finally and peacefully reconciled. What was said was left between the two friends. That's not bad for a quadruped. You gotta check your mirrors, just the side of your eye. Side of your eye.